It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This podcast has some of our favourite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romain Bostic, Taylor Riggs and Joe Weisenthal. What you miss is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, protests erupted in cities across the US and the world after the death of George Floyd while in the custody of police in Minneapolis. The demonstrations have forced many people, including those in the world of business and finance, to reckon with the vast economic inequality that exists along racial lines. To help better understand how to remedy this inequality and enable minority-owned businesses, we spoke with Larry Ivory, chairman of the National Black Chamber of Commerce, and started by asking what public policy changes needed to be made. Well, I, I think America has a big challenge in front of itself, and it must have an honest, open conversation about the wealth gap and how we created that wealth gap. But more importantly, not to rehash um, the wealth gap itself, but to come up with real solid solutions in terms of how do we fix this particular problem. Because I think what we're seeing here in America with the rioting and protesting, it's not just the uh, the, the senseless killing of an African-American. It's also a, a, a composite of other things in terms of a lack of economic opportunity for businesses. Uh, as you know, the wealth gap between African-Americans and Caucasians is more than 10 times different. Mm. Uh, when we take a look at businesses across the board, especially African-American businesses, uh, we're estimating that we may lose 30% of our businesses and when we talk, when we talk, yeah. when we looked at the PPP money from the federal government, a lot of that money came, but a lot of that money didn't get in the hands of small businesses. Small black businesses did not participate at a really high level. Matter of fact, we estimate that probably 92% of black businesses did not participate in the PPP. And without that lifeline, and without without that, then those businesses won't survive. And if we take a look at the, uh, the, the rioting and the outcry of help that people are making, then we're going to be looking at another outcome in terms of health outcomes when it comes to this virus that's going to shut us off even longer. So I think government has to really be transparent. This idea of a more perfect union is an idea. And it can only be more perfect by a patriotic American challenging America to be what it said it was supposed to be, 
right. a, a society of great opportunities, and it's not a great opportunity for all small black businesses. And we've got big challenges there. So, Larry, we have seen uh, some officials try to address this uh, even before the COVID-19 crisis. We had heard from uh, the Federal Reserve. They had sort of started these, quote, Fed listens events, the idea to try to better explain uh, Fed policy to small businesses, to minority communities. Uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, we heard from Jay Powell himself uh, talking about that growing uh, inequality that the COVID-19 crisis and the economic fallout was sort of creating. If you were in in a room with someone like Jay Powell or one of the regional Fed presidents, what sort of solution would you sort of put on the table for them that maybe they could then try to implement? Well, the first thing we need to take a look at, if you're talking to the Federal Reserve, is that, you know, three out of every five African Americans have uh, credit. Uh, You've got to address the pandemic of the lack of access to credit. And when you don't have access to credit, then we got to do something to fix that. And I think one of the things that the feds and the banks can do, which makes good business for them, is that we ought to have a real commitment to creating black companies, black-owned companies that do credit enhancement. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we could have millions of people each year that can move from bad credit to good credit. With credit comes access to opportunity. But the problem is, even with access, there's still significant disparities, access to capital when it comes to banks, when it comes to contracting opportunities. Even when blacks are qualified, there seems to be a very difficult opportunity for them to get the contract in because there's always someone who's trying to undermine uh, their participation. Uh, so if I'm sitting in the room uh, with someone uh, of that magnitude, I'm saying, then look, let's take a look at the pandemic of bad credit. Let's address that. And let's take a look at some of the barriers. Uh, we got rid of affirmative action when we did the PPP, the PPE. Uh, and I thought that was a mistake. It, it surely didn't help black participation. Mm. And when people feel like they don't matter and there's no options, you're going to get what you're getting. I mean, life, I mean, history has showed us when the peasants uh, uh, rise, they rise against uh, the kings and they do whatever it takes in order to get the attention yeah. to overthrow the government. We have to be careful that we're not setting ourselves up for great failure and great economic consequences. And I'm concerned being a, a past investment banker with Merrill Lynch and Solomon Smith Barney and running the hedge fund, I know what the economic impact could be. This virus comes back again more significant. Uh, the outcome uh, for not just African American business will be dramatic. It will be dramatic for this country. Yeah. Uh, but the country has to address the issue of fairness, level the playing field, and giving opportunities. Uh, and I say this in my in my call is that, you know, if the foot doesn't get blood to the foot, then the foot will die. Yeah. Uh, if the African American community doesn't get blood, economic growth for the community, it cannot. And the body can't be as effective. It surely can't near the hundred yard dash uh, if the foot is not functioning properly. Mm. We are a part of American society, and it must participate fairly in order to make sure that the body is healthy, strong, and can win the Olympics. Larry, are you optimistic? Do you think this is a pivotal moment? Is this a moment for change and positive change? Oh, it is. It's a tremendous opportunity because what I think we're doing is what we're seeing is the, the as a light on a very dark subject. And we have a comment in the chamber, and God we trust, but everybody else brings their data. And the data is pointing to the fact that on health outcomes, 
especially health outcomes, it's about having access to health, health uh, to doctors and everything else. When you don't have money and resources, then you don't need to go to the doctor as often. And yeah. when you end up in the doctor, you're ending up in the emergency room. So uh, economics is a very important issue. That's yeah. what King was fighting for in his transition. Technology companies have found themselves at the center of calls for change. Social media platforms have been utilized both by protests and President Trump in his calls to quell them. Even as Twitter and Snapchat have taken steps to fact-check or not promote the president's controversial posts, Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg is standing firmly behind his decision to not get involved, leading to employee backlash and even resignations. We spoke about it with Roger McNamee, the managing director of Elevation Partners and an early investor in Facebook. Facebook's behavior has been absolutely consistent ever since the first controversies around Brexit and the U.S. presidential election 2016. Their goal is very simple. They always, as a ubiquitous product, have to align with the powerful, which means the governments in every country in which they operate. It also means that they want to do everything in their power to protect the business model that has created this extraordinary revenue growth and earnings that investors have enjoyed so much. And in order to do that, they have to keep people from changing the incentives of the business model, because at the core of it, harmful speech, like hate speech and disinformation conspiracy theories, those are the most engaging forms of content out there. And the algorithms, which are built to optimize the attention of the people using the product will always promote those things intensely. And from Facebook's point of view, whenever a political problem comes up, they want to do the bare minimum to make that problem go away without doing anything that would interfere with their ability to promote the most engaging content on the platform. You say the bare minimum, Roger, but we have seen them take action in terms of investing in people, hiring more eyeballs to be able to look through the content and be able to take down harmful hate speech and the like. They have been investing to a large amount. They have been trying to, to drive the algorithms to a slightly different degree. What more would you effectively like to see? What more could they do? Because they even warned that margins were going to be crimped because of this. This is such an important question. So. The problem is that human moderation or even artificial intelligence cannot possibly succeed in a platform like Facebook or on Google or YouTube. And the reason is there are three parts of it. First is that there's an issue of scale. There are just too many posts to keep track of. The second issue is latency. There is a lag between when a post goes live and when even artificial intelligence is going to be able to scan it, make a determination, and remove it. And the combination of these two things ensures that, that essentially the platform is, uh, is going to be unmanageable that way. And the third thing is this issue of business model. If you want to solve the problems of hate speech, disinformation, conspiracy theories, if you want to allow things like COVID pandemic response to go forward without becoming politicized, you have to force changes in incentives. You have to force changes in the business model. Mm -hmm. There has to be a cost to enabling climate change denial or anti-vax or election interference. And to this point, these guys are a little bit like chemicals companies in the 50s when they poured toxic byproducts into fresh water or 
spewed toxic fumes into the atmosphere, that they caused harm without being responsible for the costs, and now we just have to make them responsible for those costs. Yeah, I mean, but right now, Roger, I mean, they obviously profit uh, pretty heavily uh, off of these types of uh, controversial posts, controversial statements. When Twitter sort of waded into this with the fact-checking of Trump, there was a lot of talk about Section 230 and the potential that maybe at some point in the near future, Congress could revisit, revisit that provision. If that were something that could plausibly be either changed or even rescinded, how much do you think that would change or force a change in those business models? From my perspective, Section 230 has a very important role in enabling both innovation and entrepreneurship, essentially enabling a startup community. At the scale of Google and Facebook and Twitter, though, Section 230 provides a safe harbor that frees them of accountability or any cost associated with doing great harm. So I think we have to change the incentives. I have a an opinion piece that is about to come out in Time Magazine on this exact issue because I really believe that we have to alter 230 to say that when a company when a company undermines, you know, to society, and there is a cost to society, that they must bear the cost of cleaning that up. We have to change their incentives, and 230 is a way to do that. I also think that we have to create a legal right for all users to sue when they have been harmed. Right now, that's something you give up in the terms of service of each platform, and that has to be eliminated. But these debates in Europe are far more advanced than they are in the United States. And the thing that Europeans, I hope, will recognize is that any change in any country has global repercussions. So if any country in the European Union were to make this change, it would be beneficial to the whole world. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. With businesses reopening across the country, we got an outlook on the U.S. economy ahead of the Friday Jobs Report with Catherine Mann, the Global Chief Economist at Citi. Catherine is also the former Chief Economist at the OECD. We started by asking her what if the data, while poor, was getting less so. Well, I think we have had a bottom um, for some people, but I I think going forward, what we need to be looking at is how the composition of um, uh, people unemployed, both continuing and initial, might change. Uh, Specifically, you know, there are firms who are going to move from I've furloughed you to I've fired you. Uh, It's going to be a different group of uh, companies that maybe uh, leisure and hospitality used to be the firing. Now maybe there's going to be some industrials. Then we've got to look at firms who are cutting costs on on expectation of a really long slog back. And then, of course, there's state and local. Um, So we've got to look below the top line in order to really understand what these numbers are telling us about progress on recovery. And so when you start to look a little bit more, uh, below that top line and specifically at some of the sectors that maybe uh, haven't quite shown up in those initial claims reports, um, mm-hmm. what do you generally expect to see with regards to job losses on a sector basis that we haven't seen already? 
Well, I think, uh, again, if we think about consumer discretionary, there are two big categories there. One is leisure and hospitality. That's going to come back much more slowly than people uh, than some people think. On the other hand, there are a lot of people in the healthcare sector who uh, were not involved as first responders uh, and, and frontline people on COVID, but um, are very important. And, and they will they will be coming back as people return to doing discretionary health care. Very important in the United States. Um, I think there's some concern about industrial. You know, a lot of firms are cutting costs very early on in this uh, um, episode, um, earlier than in the global financial crisis, for example. And so you're going to see some weakness, I think, in the industrials. And then finally, clearly, state and local governments, and uh, you know, even if there is a big package that comes out um, as a fiscal fiscal four, yeah. uh, you know, they have to got they've got to meet those budgets, and and people is the way they're going to do it. What about the fiscal side of the equation? It's interesting when we look across the pond to Europe, we are seeing not only monetary stimulus coming thick and fast from the ECB, but Germany yeah. also starting to bring out a much bigger package than some had expected. What about the fiscal with the monetary stimulus we're hearing in the US? I, they are in the right size and scale and working hand in hand? Well, I think, you know, going back to where we were in, in, in the third week of March, it's very clear that the combination of the set of programs that the uh, Monetary Authority, the Federal Reserve, put into place in combination with a very extensive first round of uh, fiscal expenditures, this was critical in, in stemming the you know, the collapse, uh, where they, the, certainly the market collapse. Now, you know, going forward, uh, there's no amount of, there's no amount of money that the monetary and fiscal policy authorities can put in here if you have, uh, reticence on the part of consumers to spend and, and businesses cutting costs, uh, because of their expectations. So in the end, it's the private sector that really has to, uh, be the driver of any recovery. The fiscal and monetary puts a floor. Uh, it's a really way down, um, obviously, but uh, in terms of the contraction, but it does put a floor on it. But you've got to have people coming back, and I and I think that this is the real question: if there's if people are not going to come back to doing what they were before, and I think most people think it's going to be slow, uh, then business is not going to come back either, and then you get a negative feedback loop, and this is the real concern. So Catherine, when we look at some of the stimulus measures uh, here in the U.S. and worldwide, there's a concern here uh, that they've been almost a little bit too broad-based. Yeah, they put a floor underneath the economy, underneath risk assets, but there's this idea that the recovery is going to be uneven uh, for a lot of groups, particularly here in the U.S. We had your colleague Dana Peterson on a few days ago, and she was talking about uh, some of the inequities that we're seeing with regards to female labor force participation. I'm wondering what can the Fed, what can fiscal policymakers do in the short term to ensure that that recovery is sort of all-inclusive? Well, uh, there's not a whole lot that the Fed can do, frankly. Um, you know, they do have a range of uh, programs out there to uh, support corporate, state and local, and uh, now Main Street Lending Facility. Uh, but, but they're limited in terms of, you know, how broadly they can, they can target those two specific demographic groups. So you got to uh, go look at uh, the fiscal policy, and on, in this regard, this uh, the uh, uh, the uh, program to support uh, small business, um, whether or not there's going to be a, another uh, set of uh, options there. Uh, you know, the uptake of this of the most recent one has not been complete. There still is kind of money in the coffers there, so there is an outreach problem, I think, in the sense that there are certainly businesses that could avail themselves of these kinds of supports. 
but um, not all of them have come forward. And so there is a concern that there's a, a swath of businesses, and they tend to be uh, minority, people of color, women, who are less uh, attuned into the banking system and less attuned into some of these programs. And advocacy groups have a role to play to make sure that these folks who haven't been able to access the program so far, have not really known how to access them, have uh, really the advocacy um, authorities, uh, you know, really need to get the uh, get these people involved. And of course, questions of inequality are not just privy to the United States. It's something that's concerned around the world. I want to get your global perspective here as global chief economist at City. What, what of the different paces of growth that we're seeing? How optimistic are you on the US vis-a-vis -vis Europe, Asia? Because finally, we're starting to see some outperformance in terms of European stocks vis-a-vis -vis US in the recent weeks. Do you think the economy can play catch up as quickly as the US has? Well, I think, you know, I think we need to make a distinction between the economy uh, playing catch-up and the uh, asset markets playing catch-up. Mm. Uh, the two of them are sort of disconnected right now. Um, the asset markets, uh, as, as Taylor was saying earlier, uh, NASDAQ being 11% uh, up for the year and S&P uh, being in the red, 3%, but only 3%. I mean, here we are looking at uh, prospects for a global contraction of, you know, nearly 4%, uh, and yet the S&P is only down 3% for the year. I mean, this is a, this is a little bit of a puzzle, um, and many people have talked about it. Uh, so there is a disconnect between financial markets and the real economy. There is also different paces of economic recovery around the world. Uh, some of it's related to where the virus started first and where, therefore, recovery has proceeded uh, somewhat uh, in advance, and that's in Asia uh, relative to, say, Europe and the U.S., um, you know, I think that, again, the U.S. Uh, had a more forceful and coordinated fiscal and monetary policy earlier on. Europe has now come out with some pretty uh, impressive um, fiscal and monetary actions. And I think that's going to make a difference in terms of uh, prospects for Europe going forward. Even amid a pandemic and an economic downturn, we haven't seen the last of the mega IPO. This week, Warner Music ushered in the biggest entertainment IPO on record, and Zoom Info shares surged in its first day as a public company. We got reaction from their CEO, Henry Shook, and asked if he thought they left too much money on the table. You know, I, I honestly, thank you. First, thank you for having me. I have not looked at the stock trading today. Oh, come I've on. been focused. <laughs> I, I, look, we're building a company here for the long term. And what the, I have the same company today as I had yesterday. And what the stock does today and what it does this week, you know, is what it will do. But I'm focused on building long-term value for our shareholders. I founded this company when I was 23 years old. I put $25,000 on my credit card while I was in law school. And I set out to build a business that could help sales and marketing professionals selling to other businesses hit their number. And I'm just as focused on that today. Um, than I, as I was yesterday when we weren't a public company. All right, so there's been obviously a lot of focus uh, on the IPO itself, of course, of the naming of your company and, and how it might conflict with the names of some other companies. Talk <laughs> a little bit specifically, though, about your business and specifically uh, what the customer environment is like for you, uh, given that some businesses now have either curtailed spending or at least maybe put off plans to increase uh, spending. Yeah, interestingly, look, what Zoom Info does is it helps business-to-business -business companies find their next customer. And in a pre-COVID environment, that was important. In a post-COVID environment, that's just as important. And companies are looking for ways to digitize their sales efforts. A lot of companies have had enterprise sales reps who are all out in the field come 
come in-house or come uh, to work from home situations? And how do you make those sellers productive? How do you make them effective and efficient? You do it with data and you do it with insights and you do it with technology. And that's what ZoomInfo provides our customers, over 15,000 companies and 200,000 sales and marketing professionals across the globe. So how do you continue to grow? How do you use the, I mean, obviously, the billion close to that you've raised in the IPO is buying back debt, is returning cash to initial investors. But where do you put money to work now? Yeah, so first, we sit in the middle of a really large total addressable market. It's a $24 billion total addressable market. We serve 700,000 businesses who sell to other businesses. And so first, we're 2% penetrated in that market, so we have a really large opportunity to continue to acquire customers, and we've built an incredibly efficient go-to-market engine to do just that. And so whether you're a Fortune 100 company like SAP or Sodexo, or you're a small uh, you know, pallet manufacturer in Alabama, if you sell to another business, we have a solution that can help you find your next customer more effectively, more efficiently. And that's as important today, or in fact, more important today uh, in the pandemic environment than it was you know, pre-pandemic. So, I mean, with regards to the ambitions, though, for the company, I mean, is the idea here to kind of stick with some of these, uh, I guess, uh, smaller or mid-sized businesses, or is the idea uh, to go after uh, some of those large, uh, big corporations? And is your strategy going forward going to focus primarily uh, on the U.S., North America, or do you have more ambitions to go beyond uh, the borders here? Yeah, it's both. Uh, we work with uh, 40% of the Fortune 100, 20% of the Fortune 500. And so we have a real opportunity to grow in the enterprise. But at the same time, this is a solution that can help SMBs and mid-market companies as well. And so they're a key part of our strategy. You know, one customer story that comes to mind is we do business with a company called Tentcraft. Tentcraft mm -hmm. makes outdoor tents for events. And so you go to a Taylor Swift concert, they're the big tent in the background, the VIP tent that, that's, nice. that's used there. And nice. as the pandemic hit, every event on the face of the earth went away. And they came to us and said, look, we think we can use these tents as COVID-19 testing centers for hospitals, but we don't know who the hospitals in the US are. We've never sold to hospitals. We don't know who the decision makers are. Can you help us do that? And we were able to get them access to the Zoom Info platform to help them do that. And they had the biggest revenue month in history last week after being uh, faced with a really troubling situation. And we have a solution that can help companies of all sizes go to market. And so uh, enterprise companies, SMB companies, international is in our sites. And so we look forward to continuing to grow in all of those different ways. Henry, as a business leader, how is the current environment affecting you and the management of the business that you're currently trying to grow, whether it be your workers staying from home? I'm sure as a technology business, you had some infrastructure in place that already helped with that. But also with the groundswell of concern, focus also on the, on the racism debate at the moment, how do you see your role as leadership? Yeah, look, we have been, uh, we've built a company that's been focused on diversity and inclusion and fairness uh, throughout uh, our history. We're going to continue to stay focused on that, and I think you'll. I think as leaders, um, we're expected to act with more than just words. We'll we'll continue to act in this regard with philanthropic efforts. We'll continue to act in our business to make sure that everybody across the company understands the importance of these issues. There's obviously you know a lot of unrest in this country around racial injustice and social injustice, and I do believe that we as leaders have to be a voice against that. 
Henry, uh, in getting this uh, this offering out the door here, I mean, you obviously had to navigate uh, an environment where you couldn't have the face-to-face contact that would sort of be normal with a, a road show. Uh, I'm just wondering uh, if another company out there of your size, of your scope, was out there looking to come to market right now, what advice would you give the executives there in sort of navigating this environment to be able to do it in a successful way? Yeah, so you know, we spent the last year meeting with investors all across the country, getting them comfortable with our business and helping them understand the ins and outs of it. And so we had built some really solid relationships going into the roadshow. Obviously, we did a completely virtual roadshow. We feel like it was really successful. I think a lot of people will tell you, you know, you got to look into the whites of someone's eyes to understand their conviction around your business. But I think, I think doing it virtually, uh, we were able to do that just as well. Um, so we felt we felt good about the fact that uh, we were able to do this successfully with the roadshow. I would say two things. Um, one, if you have a business that's growing and it's growing profitably, you know those are key uh, fundamental metrics in your business. And if you have a business that's doing that, I think the public markets are are interested in businesses doing that at scale who sit in large total addressable markets. And we happen to to be one of those businesses. And so we're really thankful for that opportunity. I will say it's much nicer to finish a a long day of meetings and walk outside my door and have a four-year-old daughter that I can spend the afternoon with. That's a lot better way to spend the afternoon than uh, in some random hotel in New York or San Francisco. There are silver linings and family time is certainly one of them. Henry, I've got to ask you, how much of a issue has been the fact that you've been named Zoom and the confusion around <laughs> Zoom Info versus Zoom Video versus Zoom Technologies versus Zoom Corp. Has it been a blessing in disguise? Has it been a hindrance? Do you wish you were still called Discover Org? No, I don't. I don't wish we were still called Discover Org. That was a name that got messed up a lot. Um, but we made the decision to call ourselves Zoom Info, you know, in June of last year when Zoom Communications was a fantastic business. Um, that that a, a fantastic um, video conferencing business that sold to other businesses. It was before it became common nomenclature for every single person around the world, <laughs> practically. Um, so I can't go back and change that decision, but I do want to make it clear. We are ticker symbol ZI. Zoom Video is ticker symbol ZM. Um, both great companies. Also, they are a great customer of Zoom Info, and they're listed oh. in our prospectus, and we have a case study with them. A wonderful business that Eric's built there, and we're big fans. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.